Matthew 5, 13-16 You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Awesome. So, if you're new to Greater Alton or if this is your first time with us, my name's Alan, and I'm glad you guys are here. We are actually starting a brand new lesson series, sermon series, and the title of the sermon series is, You Want Me to Do What? We've all had an experience where we've said that, haven't we? Wait a second, you want me to do what? Maybe someone asked you to do something you didn't hear them. This happens frequently at my house. My wife will ask me to do something, and I'll ask, you want me to do what? She claims that I, I only have selective hearing problems, and it's at, at her vocal frequency. I don't hear her. Maybe you can relate to that. Or, or maybe it's happened to you whenever you heard them fine, but you just didn't understand what they were asking you to do. You want me to do what? Or maybe it was neither of those. Maybe what they were asking you to do was so outrageous that you were pushing back a little bit. Wait a minute, you want me to do what? You with me? We deal with this question. You want me to do what? There was a time where my first job as a as a young adult, by the way, this is so odd to me. I think this is the first time I've actually preached with everybody in a circle, which means at some point in the service, I'm showing my backside to somebody, and I'm not sure who gets it worse. The people, <laughs> the view from the front or the view from the back. I'm sorry, both ways. But whenever I was a cop, this question, you want me to do what? Really hit home to me one time. I was about 21 years old, and I lived in a part of the, of the country on the eastern side of the state, frequently, routinely, habitually, we had tornadoes. If we didn't have them once or twice every year, it certainly felt like it was once or twice every year. And I remember, I think it was my first year on patrol as a police officer. Again, I'm like 21, and we had this massive tornado that touched down. And as it, as it turned out, it actually magged down an entire small town just north of our, of our city. But I'll never forget, I was patrolling... Things are rocking and rolling. It's looking pretty bad. And I'm parked my squad car in a uh, in a car wash because I thought, well, this is the safest place, right? So I'm pulled up in there, kind of hunkered down, and I get a radio dispatch. MC-12 Mount Carmel. Go ahead. We've got reports of a tornado on the ground north of the city. We'd like for you to go out there and look and check and see if it's really there. Now, the, I don't know if you've gone through any training about tornadoes. They don't seem to happen here like they used to happen there. So maybe you don't know this. First rule of staying alive if there's a tornado is don't try to chase down a tornado in your car. Because they are unpredictable. You have to stay on a road for the most part. Tornadoes do not. And they turn really quickly. I know this lesson because I've grown up in that neck of the woods. So whenever they dispatch me, 
to drive out there, the first thing that goes through my mind is, did I really make the chief that mad? <laughs> you know? I'm coming back with Mount Carmel and say, well, well, you want me to do what? <laughs> Chase down a tornado. Mount Carmel, probably not going to happen. <laughs> I didn't go. And I didn't get in trouble for it. I used to get in trouble for everything, and I didn't get in trouble for that that time, so I think I was on solid ground. Why do I tell you that story? I'm just trying to get us kind of thinking about, there are times when it's reasonable to say, you want me to do what? As Christians, who is it that tells us what to do? Is it me? You know, I'm one of the shepherds here at the church. Am I the one that's supposed to tell you what to do? I don't think that's my job. I think our job is to let Jesus tell us what he wants us to do. And yet, as we start dealing with what Jesus wants us to do and really to looking at what he teaches, I find myself asking the question again. Wait a minute. You want me to do what? Have you had that experience? Yeah. Okay, so the, so the passage that Tom just read to us is actually one of the opening verses in the Sermon on the Mount. How many of you guys have read the Sermon on the Mount? Awesome. How many of you guys have studied it? Even better. How many times as you read and studied the Lord's teaching? Because the Sermon on the Mount is like the biggest collection of Jesus' teachings we have in one place in the whole Bible, right? And if we're following Jesus, just sort of makes sense that we want to know what he teaches and what he wants us to do, right? So it makes sense to deal with his sermon and to ask the question, what do you want me to do? And if you studied the Sermon on the Mount, hopefully that's what you were asking. Jesus, what do you want me to do? And yet how many times as you were reading through it, did you find yourself asking, wait, you want me to do what? So what we're going to be doing in this sermon series is we're going to be trying to answer the question. What is it that Jesus wants us to do? And we're going to take our time. We're going to go through them as best as we can, one at a time. And we're going to try to work through uh, unpacking the idioms that Jesus uses. Because he uses idioms in his teaching. He also uses hyperbole a lot. No more than we do. <laughs> we use hyperbole all the time. So does Jesus. Also, he originally spoke in a language we don't speak. And sometimes the language that he taught in, that the, his lessons were recorded in, don't always come over into English super cleanly. So we're going to try to unpack as best as we can and get to exactly what it is that Jesus wants us to do. I can tell you that this isn't always going to be the easiest lesson series to, to preach or to understand. So I'm not going to tell you that as we go through this journey, this is going to be real easy. At the same time, I know this crowd. And I know that most of you are hungry to know what Jesus really wants. And I believe that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand things. And I believe that you're ready for a little bit of meat. You're ready for a little bit of, okay, let's get into this. Jesus is Lord. How, what does he want me to do? It's not going to be easy, but I will promise you this. If you will let it, this will be transformative. Jesus' teachings are absolutely transformative. I don't understand how it works exactly, because it's not like flipping a switch. It's not like, well, if I keep all these rules, 
all of a sudden everything goes up and to the right. A few years ago, my ministry and my own personal study brought me back to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if I had been asked prior to this, did I know the Sermon on the Mount, I would have quickly agreed that, yeah, I know it. What I found out was I didn't know much of what I thought I knew. And I had to get real with, what do you want me to do? You want me to do what? I had to start working through this. Now, some of you have known me long enough. I'm I'm surrounded mostly by friends here today who've known me for the last almost 30 years, some of you. Would those of you who've known me that long, you remember when I started working on this, don't you? It was over 10 years ago. Have I changed? (laughs) I'm always skeptical about asking this question because I don't know. From my experience, it doesn't feel like I've changed. But it comes up frequently. I've had people that haven't known me for 20 years who've known me more like five or six who say, yeah, dude, you're not the same guy that you were five years ago. I don't always see the differences that that studying what Jesus has taught and trying to take that serious and trying to do what he wants me to do, I don't always see how that's changing me. But what I can tell you is what I experienced from doing it. And what I've experienced is a whole lot more peace. A whole lot more purpose. I'm not nearly as legalistic as I used to be, and yet I've never been more serious about my sin. I'm not as insecure as I used to be. I feel safe and secure in my salvation, but I'm more motivated than I ever have been to please Jesus. That doesn't come from somewhere inside me. That comes from, I think, the Holy Spirit working. I think that God will do that for all of us. The things that I feel like have blessed, that's why I wanted to go over this lesson series with you, is I want everybody, and and many of you have already started to experience some of this anyway, but I want you to interact with what the Lord wants you to do to get serious about it, to understand it, and then see what He does in your life. Okay, enough prep. Let's take this. We'll get into it. So you want me to do what? When Tom read the words of Jesus, and Jesus said, you're salt and light, what did you think Jesus wants you to do? What's that? Ding, 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 winner. He wants us to be salt and to be light. What does that mean? <laughs> For years, I read that, and I just went, well, he wants me to be salt and light. I knew I didn't know exactly what that meant, but I thought maybe it would come clear. (laughs) So I just kind of kept reading. I didn't press it any deeper. And it is true that through the rest of the sermon, Jesus is going to give us a lot of instruction on what it means to exactly to be salt and light. But let's start off at this at the 30,000 foot level, looking down on it. Salt and light change the environment that they're placed in. Jesus says, I want you to be salt and light. Isn't he saying, I want you to change the environment that you're placed in? Yeah. And why? And here's the the first, I guess the lesson title today is because he wants us to help him. Why does he want us to change the environment we're in? Because that's what he's doing, right? What is Jesus' mission? Seek and save the lost, to save people, 
for God's kingdom, and it's in his prayer, and we're going to cover that as we go through this, to bring heaven to earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what Jesus is saying in this right at the get-go is, I want you to help me. I want you to help me change the world you live in. Does that take anybody back? Does that make anybody go, now wait a second, hold on. Is that really what this is about? Because how many of us are thinking, well, that's impossible. How do I change the world? You know, I'm 57. I wasn't aware enough of the 60s, the late 60s, to know how confusing a time it was in our country. But some of you were. And right now we're in just as chaotic and confusing a time with the addition of social media and cable network news. And so right now, there are a lot of people yelling about changing our world. And they've got all kinds of ideas on how to do it. Jesus wants us to change the world too. If he wants us to be salt and light, he wants us to change the world. I bet you he's got different ideas than the the people who don't know him have. I bet he's got a different way of wanting to do it. How many of us have gotten this kind of this, this paradigm where we think instead of us, Jesus wanting us to help him, this is supposed to be about Jesus helping us. I'm not saying that's not true that Jesus doesn't help us. But I think that when we come to Jesus' sermon, if we're looking at it about what he's supposed to do for us, we're going to misunderstand and have trouble understanding what it is he wants us to do. He wants us to help him, and he wants us to help him a change in the world. So how am I supposed to help him change the world? Well, I mentioned that we live in a climate where people are hollering about it, and I've, I, it's just me, but it seems like it, the world is suggesting one of the three, or maybe all three, of, of, the, of the P's. Protest, politics, and post on Facebook. Is that really going to change the world? I don't know, but it's not what Jesus is asking for us to do. He wants us to be salt and light. So for the rest of the sermon, where we get into that as we, in the coming weeks, he's going to drill down on what it means to be salty, what it means to be the light of the world. Today we're going to satisfy ourselves with trying to come in at it at an angle and unpack a little bit about what salt is and what light is. You with me? Okay, let's deal with the first one. I want you to be salty. Again, if you're like me, you've read this for years, not really understanding it too deeply, just kind of moving over it kind of quickly. You with me? Okay, well, here's what I found when I stopped that and decided to dig into it. First of all, salt was in Jesus' day. We always have to remember, we've got to put ourselves in that original context. Jesus was talking to real people at a real place in a real time, and it wasn't that much like where we are right now. Salt was very different in Jesus' day. Salt was extremely expensive. It was hard to come by. Today it's really cheap, right? But in Jesus' day, it was very valuable. 
By the way, if Jesus is saying you are the salt of the earth, what's he saying about your value? You are very valuable to Jesus if you're salty. The word salary came from the word salt because salt was actually used sometimes to pay Roman soldiers. That's how valuable it was. I mean, we throw salt over our shoulder. A first century Jew would have screamed, ah, what are you doing? That's, that's how day's wages you just chucked over your shoulder. It was very valuable. How am I supposed to be the salt of the earth? Well, just like today, though less often because of the expense of the salt, salt was used to season food. That's one of the ways that they used salt in Jesus' day. But again, because it was so precious, it didn't come up too often. I think sometimes they used it for sacrifices at the temple. Some of the grain offerings, I think they would throw some salt on, on that. I'm looking at Bob because Bob has studied the, the sacrifices more than anybody I know. Salt was very valuable and it was used to, to season. So it could mean, whenever Jesus is saying, I want you to, you are the salt of the earth, it could mean that he expects us, what he wants us to do is he wants us to be the salt of the earth by changing the flavor of the groups that I'm in. How much salt does it take to change the flavor of a meal? Not much. <laughs> in fact, some people, I mean, I like a lot of salt. I salt my pizza. I salt my ham. You know, those, that's a really bad idea if you're worried at all about your health. I like a lot of salt. My wife, not so much, unless we're talking about movie popcorn. If we're talking about movie popcorn, she likes it to swim in butter, and you could not have a cow's salt lick and satisfy her with her craving for salt. But whenever I'm cooking like pasta and other things, back off of the salt. It doesn't take a whole lot of salt to change the flavor of a meal. And in the same way, it doesn't take a whole lot of saltiness in a Christian, or a whole lot of salty Christians, to change the flavor of a group of people. How many of you as Christians have noticed that whenever you come into a group of friends or, or workmates or someplace like that, all of a sudden the flavor changes? How many of you witnessed Christians come into a group and change the flavor of the group? It happens, doesn't it? You know, sometimes people cuss and, and rant and rave and then a Christian shows up and it calms it down. And that happens by a couple, a couple of different things. Have you ever been with one of those annoying Christians who refuses to complain? You know, everybody's having a good time bad-mouthing somebody, bad-mouthing something, and a Christian comes in and goes, you know, here's the positive thing. Here's something good. And have you noticed that it stops the crazy cycle? Oftentimes it does. I think that's one of the ways, and could be what Jesus means, whenever he says, you're the salt of the earth. I think he wants us to change the flavor. I think that's a possible meaning that he's got there, but salt was not only and were always just used for flavoring a meal. And I think its most common use in Jesus' day was as a preservative. They didn't have refrigeration, so they'd store meat with, with salt. I mean, I think people here were still familiar with people that have salt-cured ham and things like that. So they use it to preserve, but they would also use it to keep things from rotting to solve with an infection and things like that. They'd put it in a wound. Salt in a wound is not 
a feel-good moment, but it does have an antiseptic quality and stops things from festering and getting infected. Could it mean that that's what Jesus expects us to do for him? Is that what he wants us to do? I think either one of those, or maybe both of those, are potentially what he's after. So what that means is, how am I supposed to be salt of the earth? Well, maybe by stopping or slowing down the rotting of my society. I mentioned stopping the crazy cycle. Whenever you stand up for Jesus in a crowd, and you don't play the game of being negative, of being mean, of being dishonest, it tends to stop it. A lot of times there's a cycle of abuse. One person is mad at the world, and so they just let it rage. And they're in a bad mood, and they're, they take it out on somebody. Then that person takes it out on somebody. And somebody takes it out on somebody else. I used to see this in my old neighborhood. I had neighbors who loved to start other neighbors fighting. You've been there? You know these people? Yeah, I know it seems weird, but there are people who just love to start trouble. And they do it by picking on somebody. Whenever I started studying this, because before this, I wanted to retaliate. I didn't like it. When I started studying this, I realized, wait, Jesus is wanting me to absorb the insult and not to retaliate. I did not understand it beyond that point at the time, but whenever I was insulted, I just tried to be obedient. What I did notice later was it stopped the crazy cycle. I think Jesus puts us in these social circles to be salt, to stop the rot. Right now, it's very popular to be immoral. I guess it's always been been popular to be immoral. I remember so many stories that come to mind where I was in groups where it was being encouraged to be immoral. As a police officer, every cop I knew was fooling around on their wife. And it was almost expected that I would be two things. As a young man and as a cop, I'd be an alcoholic and I'd be a womanizer. And I wasn't very popular in either one of those circles because I didn't want to go along with it. But what I noticed is, whenever I stood up, some other people stood up, and it became less popular. I happened to be in my neighborhood, and this is back during the riots a couple of years ago. I was talking with one of my neighbors, an atheist, and we were talking about it, and I was talking about some of the things I had learned from this Sermon on the Mount. Not this particular point. But I was just talking about just the three, the big three that I think God has revealed that He wants from us. And I'll give you a little preview. It's justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I'll talk about that when we get to that. But I was just talking about, have you just took one of these three and added it to the equation in some of these riots? Everything changes for the better. And this atheist person was agreeing. Now, she liked to debate me on everything. But she was like, yeah, I really can't argue with that. And then I began to express my frustration about trying to help some Christians understand this. Sometimes I get more mileage out of talking to a non-believer than I do to a believer. I don't like that. I've been that hard-headed guy that someone else tried to help, so I've got it coming. But I was like, I made the statement. I said, you know, sometimes 
I mean, I'm talking about this justice, mercy, and faithful stuff everywhere I go. And sometimes I just feel like I'm beating my head against a wall. Nobody's listening. You know, I don't know. And she looked at me and she said, well, now hold on. Now, again, this is a person who lines up on, on the opposite of me. On We're close friends. Love her to death. She's on the opposite end of everything from me. Politics, persuade, everything. She's different from me. And does not believe there's a God. And she said, hang on, before you get too down on, on thinking you're not having an effect, I want to let you know that every time we talk, I walk away, because every time we talk, you end up talking about Jesus. And every time we talk, something you say makes sense to me. And I go home different. And with my spouse, you know, you were talking about this before, by the way, she says. And so whenever I went home, my spouse did something that really made me mad. And I didn't retaliate like I normally would. Because we had had this conversation. So I absorbed the insult and I was loving back. And it changed my spouse. They were mad because somebody else, I mean, they were taking it out on me because somebody else had started the crazy cycle. And so it changed my spouse. And then my spouse went to work and did the same thing at work. Came back and told me about it. And that person changed. And so I don't know about your church, she says, but you're having a positive impact in this neighborhood and you're having a positive impact in my marriage and you're having a positive impact in our workplaces. And of course, it's not me. It's the transformative power of what Jesus says. Was that a little bit of salt? I'm just one guy. And it wasn't an intentional. I had no idea how God was going to work in that situation, but he did. And he will with you. Jesus wants us to help him. He wants us to be salty. He wants us to change the flavor of the groups that we're in. He wants us to change and slow down the rot in our society. To stop the crazy cycle. Maybe even reverse it. But being salty isn't a given, is it? What does Jesus say after you're the salt of the world, salt of the earth? He says, if salt's lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That almost sounds like it's impossible. Well, hang on. Let me back up. How does salt lose its saltiness? I am, I, I was terrible at chemistry. I mean, I was really bad because I, I really stank at math. <laughs> I was bad at math. So I didn't understand chemistry, but I understood this. Salt is sodium chloride, right? It's always sodium chloride. That's why it's salty. How does salt lose its saltiness? Technically, it can't. At least not our version of salt can't. But in Jesus' day, they had a different kind of salt. Yes, it was still sodium chloride, but their way of getting it was different. Back in their day, they didn't have pure salt. They had to dig it up, they had to, and they didn't have the refining process. So what would happen is even the best salt that they could find always had some impurities in it. Minerals, maybe some dirt, 
sand, things that look like salt, it might actually look like salt. But they would store it a lot of times. They would, they would keep it in like a canvas or a cloth, a textile type of a bag. Guess what would happen if it got wet? The salt would leach out. Then what would be left? All the impurities. It would look like salt. It would not taste like salt, which means it would not function like salt. Here's the truth about us as Christians. Being salty is not a given. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're salty. And if you are a salty Christian, it doesn't mean that you can count on always being salty because you can lose your saltiness. I'm not making it up, and I'm not trying to scare anybody, but that's what Jesus says, so i got to deal with it, right? He throws out what we would think of as an absurd hypothetical, but it's not absurd in his day, because it happened all the time. Salt would lose its saltiness, and it was no longer fit for what it was intended to be for. How do I not become salty, or how do I lose my saltiness? I would suggest the same way that his salt became unsalty. We get all wet and watered down. And we get we, the impurities are all that's left. If I get watered down with cares of this world, and what what's going to be left over are just the pure impurities. Selfishness, laziness, Pride, those are the things that are going to be left over if I allow myself to get watered down and polluted with the desires of this world. I think it's a lot like what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 13 where he talks about the seeds that are thrown. There was one that was thrown and and grew up amongst thorns. There were the cares of the world and the thorns choked it out and there was no fruit. And how many Christians do we have who claim Christ but there's no saltiness to them. The flavor of the groups they're in don't change because they still handle stress and sex and money just like the people who don't love Jesus. They use their mouths, their tongues the same way. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but there's no saltiness to it. That's a big problem for Jesus. What happens whenever salt loses its saltiness? What does Jesus say? What's that? It's ineffective. What happens? It gets thrown out and gets trampled underfoot. i got to let you know, whenever people trample salt under their feet, they aren't persecuting it. They're ignoring it. As Christians, when we don't allow God to make us salty, or we allow the cares of this world to cause us to lose our saltiness, we become irrelevant to the world around us. They don't persecute us. They ignore us. They don't pay any attention. So I've got a bucket here. I'm going to pick this up myself. I was going to pick it on somebody else, but I'm going to risk my back. This is heavy. I don't think I can curl it. Nope. You know what's in this? What's that? Yeah. (laughs) 
It's got some weight to it. You know what that is? Salt. You know where I got it? From my water softener. <laughs> so what I found out is if you put just regular cheap water softener salt in your water softener and then try to water your plants or your garden, <laughs> it doesn't help your plants at all. So I ended up having to dig all this rock salt, the wrong kind of salt, out of my water softener and replace it with something that was potassium-based that would do the water softening job and yet be good for my plants. I ended up with this five-gallon bucket of leftover salt. I've had it for about a year, trying to figure out what can I do with it. Why didn't I throw it away the minute I put it in this bucket? Because there's so much of it. <laughs> I got a lot of salt here. I got to be able to do something with this, right? It will not serve the purpose for which it was intended. It's no longer good for anything. But I keep trying to think of a way I can use it. You know why I brought it with me today besides this sermon? Because we got a dumpster out back. And I've determined I have no use for this salt. I'm just hanging on to this big bucket, hoping that someday I could find a use for it, and I've finally given up on it. Whenever Jesus talks about unsalty salt getting thrown out, who is it that throws out that salt? Is it the world? They're the ones who ignore us and trample on us when we're not salty. I get the idea that it's the owner of the salt. As Christians, who's our owner? Jesus, it's his church. How many of us, how many churches are big buckets full of unsalty Christians? How long has the Lord put up with that big bucket? How long have we put up with it? Hoping that we can find a purpose for what we are. And yet it comes a time whenever the Lord throws out the bucket and the salt that's in it. I gotta tell you, this bothers me. Because I like this bucket that we have here. But I'm concerned. I don't want to be thrown out. I don't want to lose this bucket. I don't want to lose you guys. But if this is the Lord's church, and we're really not concerned too much about what He wants us to do, how long is He going to let the bucket sit in His garage? Like I did. Okay. That's a harsh point. <laughs> but it's not over. Remember, Jesus says, how can salt be made salty again? It almost sounds like you can't make it salty again, right? That's why you would throw it out. You can't make it salty again. But that's not the case with God. Can God make me salty again if I've lost it? Can he make me salty if I've never been salty? The answer to both questions is, yeah. I mean, it may sound like he's saying that that's not an option, but remember, there was a time whenever Jesus was talking with his disciples, he was talking about rich people getting into heaven. He said it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to go into heaven. And the guys with him were saying, so it's impossible? And Jesus' answer is, well, it's impossible with man. But it is possible with God. With God, all things are possible. 
It's Matthew 3 if you want to check me out on that. God can make any of us salty. If you've lost your saltiness, He can restore your saltiness. This is good news. He can restore your purpose. He can restore your peace, your joy. You can help Him. You can still help Him change the world. So how can God make me salty or salty again? Well, Malachi 3, verses 2 through 3, says that God refines us with fire. Anybody here familiar with being on the fire? If, uh, Aslan, you've done some, some smelting, right? What's that process like? You put metal with impurities in it into a fire, right? What happens to the metal? And then you get something off the, off the top. What do you call that that you skim off? Scale, dross, I think, if you're talking about precious metals. But it's the worthless stuff, right? And so what you come out of the fire with is something purer and more desirable, something that has more value, something that can be used for a greater purpose. God will make us salty or make us salty again if we let him turn up the heat. If we let him turn up the heat. But that is a huge if. How many of us would acknowledge that we have resisted letting God have his way with us? Letting him turn up the heat on us. Because it's painful to go through. Mark 9, 49, Jesus says this, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a joining, just a sentence that sort of joins a couple of things, and it's, it's not real easy to know exactly what he's at here, but he says, for everyone will be salted with fire. I'm not certain I know exactly what that means, but it probably means that we become salty by going through fiery circumstances. I'm looking around and I know several of you that have gone through some fiery circumstances. And they hurt. But do you see that smelting, removing the impurities happening? Because I've seen some of you go from what looks like, have you ever seen gold when they first dig it up? Or any of the precious metal? It looks one way before the fire. It looks another after it comes out. And it gleams. You can see your reflection in it. And with some of you in this crowd that I know personally, I see Jesus in you. You came out of that fire. Sorry, didn't think that was going to strike me that emotionally, but... Because I know some of you, and I know some of your stories. It, uh, I don't know, it's impacting me this morning. I didn't plan on getting all, all misty. Maybe I need to change the topic a little bit here. Uh, you allowed God to turn up the heat. And He made you something else. He changed you. And I don't know any of you, myself included, that would look at the things that we've gone through and say, if God hadn't gave me a chance to take it all away and never go through that, that we would trade what we've gained for missing the pain. We never want to go through these things again. But yet God did something miraculous through it, and he made us salty. He made us more fit for helping him 
through some of the most embarrassing and crushing things that we've gone through because we allowed him to do it to us. God uses trials and hardships to burn away everything else. Think of it this way. The sea is full of salt, right? But to get the salt out of the sea, what do you have to do? Well, there's one of two two ways that I know of. One is you can boil the water, and what's left is the salt. Or you can get a big salt bed with plastic, pour it out shallowly, and let the sun bake it till all the water is gone, and then what's left is the saltiness. And I think that what God does to us, if we will let him turn up the heat, is he'll use trials and hardships to burn away everything else until what remains in us is an extreme desire for God's righteousness. What's God's righteousness? The Greek word is dekiosune. I'm pretty sure I'm butchering the pronunciation. What's the definition of righteousness? The best I've come up with is what God requires and what pleases Him. Those of us that have gone through this, and I'm so tempted to point to some of you guys and ask you personally, but I found this to be the case for me, that after I've gone through some of these hard times, what's been left is a deep hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because I'm going through some hardships. Some of the hardships I've been through have been because I'm standing up for Jesus. And they've been crushing. But it's either serve Him and go through this very painful thing, or try not to serve Him so that I can avoid the pain. And whenever, and I've chosen both. I've chosen both. But whenever I've said yes to the fiery circumstances, what burns away is my desires for me. And what I'm left with is a real extreme hunger and thirst for righteousness, for what God requires and for what pleases Him. And I walk away with, I just want to please you. Help me to play my part the right way. And I think He's made me saltier because of it. And I know He's made some of you guys saltier because of it. And I know you impact the circles that you stand in, the places where you work, And I know you stop the crazy cycle in a lot of your places that you go through. I have gone for longer than I have time. I still got a half of the lesson left. And I'm going to stop here today because I think uh, it's a good place to stop. I want to remind you this being thirsty and hungry for righteousness, that's Going back just a few verses earlier than where we're dealing with today, it's in the Beatitudes, and Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. They'll be satisfied by God. It may not fully happen in this world. Talk about contentment. We can be content, but maybe not fully satisfied. But God can make us salty. And what he wants to do is he wants us to help him. You want me to do what? I want you to help me, he's saying. I want you to help me change the world. Well, how do I do that, Lord? Well, forget about Facebook and forget about your political agendas and and stop the riots. I want you to be salty. I want you to be light. We're going to stop with the salt part today. And next week we'll come back. Save your notes, or we'll print them again, and we'll finish up this lesson, and we'll look at what he means where he says, I want, you're the light of the world. 
And we'll try to dig into what he has for us there. I really believe this is some practical stuff that we're covering here this morning. And I think that if we will let the Lord have his way with us, he will turn up the heat. He'll burn off the impurities, but he'll make us salty and he will change the world around us. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to pray and ask you to make us salty. Now, who knew that just from such a short little verse there'd be so much to, to deal with, so much to look at. Father, thank you for allowing us to be of use and to be a, for the privilege of, of helping you change the world. Father, we, we could never do this on our own. We've watched so many people try and uh, it always comes up short. And yet you change the world miraculously in ways that just happen like fruit coming off of a tree. It just happens whenever we follow you. Father, I know that when I'm praying for us to, to be saltier and to have the effect in this world for you that, you that you want us for, that you bought us for, that I'm also inviting trials and hardships that make us salty. So, Father, I pray that you'll give us strength and wisdom and perspective on whatever trials and hardships we're going through right now or the ones that are coming. Help us to realize that it's with a purpose, that you're doing something in us that makes us more like you and more fit for duty in your kingdom that will bless others. So, Father, I pray that you'll give us strength and perspective on all those hardships. Father, I pray that you'll change my appetites. I pray that you'll change our appetites, that you'll make us hungrier and thirsty than ever before for your righteousness. Father, I pray that we will be a people that are constantly wanting to find out what pleases you, and then to do it. Father, we love you and we're committing our ways to you. Thank you again for the blessing of being in your kingdom and being in your family. Uh, It's in Jesus' name we're praying. Amen.